This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 6 of Office Hours, and our theme is to know wisdom. Foolishness has been a part of the human condition since the fall, but it was not that way in the beginning. We were made to be wise by knowing and obeying God. After the fall, by grace alone, through faith alone, we find true saving wisdom in Christ alone. Nevertheless, we are surrounded by much foolishness, and Christians might be tempted to doubt the importance of wisdom since it seems as if a lot of people get along without it. The psalmist laments this phenomenon. Fools seem to prosper while the wise go begging. Here to help us understand the importance of getting a heart of wisdom is Dr. David Vendrunen, the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of Bioethics and the Christian Life, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, and most recently, Divine Covenants and Moral Order, a Biblical Theology of Natural Law. These and other faculty titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you. What is wisdom? And I ask that not because we haven't discussed it in previous episodes, but the listener may just be joining the series here. And also, Scripture says a great deal about wisdom, and not everybody operates with exactly the same definition. Yes, that's really true. It's hard to give a very neat, brief definition because it's a complicated subject and a rich subject in many ways. My working definition of wisdom is that wisdom is a perception of the moral order of this world and an understanding of how to live one's life in accordance with that. And that ultimately uh, has to do with perceiving the way things fit together, the way human beings operate, uh, the way the world fits, and being able to live one's life in ways that are going to be good for oneself, that are going to be productive and fruitful for others, and ultimately that's going to honor God, who's the one who's the sovereign Lord over the moral order of this world. And wisdom, ultimately, however much it is reflected in creation, is grounded in God, right? He is wisdom, the source of wisdom. Uh, Before we started, I was searching the uh, Westminster Seminary Confessions app, which is on iTunes. You can look it up and download that for your mobile device. I was looking for the word wisdom just to see what the confessions say about it. And the first reference that comes up is Westminster Confession, chapter uh, 1, section 1. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. So wisdom starts with God. Yes, God is all-wise. It's one of his attributes. Uh, It's also one of his communicable attributes in that it is a characteristic of God that in some way we reflect or we ought to reflect as human beings. Uh, If you think about the early chapters of Proverbs, it describes how God created the world by wisdom. And so we get this sense that comes across very strongly in Proverbs that the world itself reflects God's wisdom. As we see the glory and majesty of God reflected in this world, we get this insight into his wisdom. The wisdom that we are to exercise in this world is to be a reflection of God's wisdom. 
So there's a connection between God's wisdom and what we see in the world, the way the world works, the way we live in it, the way we ought to live in it, the way we ought to relate to one another. How do you describe the nature of the relationship between wisdom as it is in God and wisdom as we come to perceive it and make use of it? Sure. I think it may be helpful here to think in terms, that kind of idea that we've often talked about in the Westminster Seminary tradition, that we're thinking God's thoughts after him, that God is one who is all understanding. God is one who understands this world perfectly. God knows exactly the right way for his creatures to live in this world. And so, if we are to grow in wisdom, we're not gaining some sort of uh, self-created knowledge. We're seeking to perceive that in a creaturely way, that understanding that God himself has. And so, we're trying to perceive and understand and then to act in ways that reflect the knowledge and the holiness of God. Do you think it's possible or is it useful to distinguish between spiritual wisdom and uh, what we might call natural or creational wisdom? And if we should distinguish things that way. How should we relate them? And here I'm thinking of the way that the primary Hebrew noun or the family of words, chokmah, is used, for example, for practical skill. I'm looking at Ezekiel 28, verse 3, and it says, you shall speak to all the skillful in the ESV, but the root is the same root that we have for wisdom. And so, these are people who are said here to have a spirit of skill or a spirit of wisdom so that they can make Aaron's garments and consecrate him for the priesthood. So how do we uh, relate these things? For example, were these people endowed with a supernatural skill or was this a natural skill? How do you think about these things? Sure. Let me give you a two-part answer in that first, let me try to address the kind of natural spiritual distinction that you suggest. And then let me also suggest a different kind of natural spiritual distinction that I think is also present in scripture. So first, I think you are correct to observe that there are times when these Hebrew words for wisdom do refer to a kind of a skill. A skill in a craft, a skill in your work. I think in our own day, you could think about people who have a certain wisdom in a sport or playing a musical instrument. There's Golf, a, for there's, example. For exa- yes, I, <laughs> I, I'm striving for more of that. But I think you can see that just in what we've talked about thus far, in that there is a way that this world is put together. And if that's the case, there are certain ways in which you can work well, and certain ways that you work poorly, certain ways that you can develop skills in ways that are excellent, in ways that are pleasing in ways that are productive. And at the same time, we also find in Scripture then that wisdom is ultimately the fear of the Lord. I mean, that's the beginning and the heart of wisdom. And the immediate question that comes to mind, which I think is driving your question, is that you find people who are very skillful in a lot of things in this world who don't fear the Lord, who don't have that kind of spiritual understanding and reverence before the Almighty. I think that is one of the puzzles of trying to understand wisdom in its fullness, and that it is possible to have, in a sense, an element of wisdom, an element of insight as to how this world works. But you're not truly and ultimately wise if you don't put that in the bigger picture in terms of understanding God as the sovereign over all things. And I think Part of that uh, has to do with this theme of humility. If you read Proverbs, for example, the theme of humility comes out over and over again. To be wise, to be truly one who is able to separate oneself from the world, a certain detachment from the world. You don't think too much about yourself. You're willing to learn. Uh, You're willing to observe. It's really only one who fears God who will be truly and ultimately humble because you have a right perception of yourself. And that's what promotes this true and holistic kind of spiritual wisdom. But it is the case that there are many people who have certain kinds of skills that is a a certain reflection of true wisdom without actually being the genuine article. 
You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Now, let me also point to another distinction in biblical wisdom that I think you could also call a natural or spiritual, or there's probably a better term for it. But I think there is what I I might call a natural revelation kind of wisdom, right? That God has made this world by his wisdom. He suffused it with this revelation of himself. And I think a whole lot of the book of Proverbs has to do with this natural revelation kind of wisdom. It encourages us to be observant as we live in this world, to reflect upon our experiences, to learn what makes people tick, right? To learn what kinds of conduct make people angry, what kinds of conduct bring peace, uh, what kinds of activity tends to bring prosperity, what kind of activity tends to bring poverty. But I think there's also this I'm not sure what the best term is. Maybe it's a salvific or even an eschatological wisdom. And that's the wisdom that I think is only revealed in Christ uniquely, right? And so, as important as natural revelation is, natural revelation does not reveal the incarnate Christ. It doesn't reveal the gospel. And yet, I think, especially as we get into the New Testament and see those great statements about Christ as the true revelation of God's wisdom, I think it points us in the direction of this salvific or eschatological wisdom. There are certain things revealed through Christ in the gospel that just don't make sense in terms of natural revelation, things that natural revelation doesn't know about. And I think, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when it tells us to turn the other cheek, or you think of 2 Corinthians, when Paul talks about generous giving in chapters 8 and 9, he talks about giving beyond one's means or an abundance that flows out of poverty. I think there's a certain thing that there's an appeal here to our riches in Christ and to the redemptive mercy and grace of God that's not revealed in natural revelation. And to be fully wise in that Christian sense requires that knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of his gospel. And it ought to shape the way that we live in ways that even an accurate perception of natural revelation can't do. So we can distinguish between two kinds of natural wisdom, creational wisdom that's embedded in the nature of things that anyone can perceive and by which they can be relatively happy, relatively successful, prosperous, etc. And then there is another sense of natural wisdom that James speaks about, a wisdom from below, an earthly wisdom that he characterizes as unspiritual and demonic. And so when you're talking about creational natural wisdom, you're not talking about that. No, that's right. Uh, I mean, we understand that even the wisdom that is, we might say, accessible in natural revelation, that all people are able to perceive. and Christians and non-Christians alike. That's right. right. And we recognize that because of sin, everyone corrupts that and perverts that in various ways. But in principle, right, there is this wisdom that is accessible to all people. And that's not what James is talking about. Well, let me come back to that in just a second. But it is possible, too, for Christians to to know Christ, to know the Word of God, to love Jesus, to have true faith, to be regenerate, and yet to lack, to a certain degree, that sort of ordinary wisdom that is to some degree shared, although perhaps understood differently and, and appreciated differently, and then certainly interpreted differently by Christians and non-Christians. Nevertheless, it is something that we both share So you can be a believer and still, in some sense, lack an important kind of wisdom, right? That's right, because this kind of wisdom that we're talking about now, we might think of as, in many respects, a common grace 
kind of wisdom. And God imparts that wisdom insofar as it has to do with certain skills in working and playing and living to unbelievers that are richer than what he gives to believers at times. And at the same time, I think it's also very important that we as Christians, as part of our sanctification, that we seek to grow in that wisdom that we lack. And of course, James gets at that point as well, right at the beginning of his epistle. Uh, If anyone lacks wisdom, he ought to pray to God who will give it. And a necessary part of our sanctification is growing in wisdom. But by admitting that we need to grow in wisdom, we also confess that we lack wisdom. Every one of us who's honest sees that in various areas of our life. We just, we do foolish things. We do, we do dumb things. And your life as a consequence will be different and perhaps less happy, less prosperous, or less successful from at least an outward point of view. And that has real personal, psychological, emotional, and even spiritual consequences when we act uh, foolishly, even in in the common realm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you think about how often Proverbs talks about words that you speak, and there's so many ways that we use our words foolishly. Even we who are Christians, we say things that are hurtful. We say things that don't fully reflect the truth. And so, we hurt others. We hurt our relationships with others. Or you think about how often Proverbs talks about being industrious. The person who's industrious tends to prosper more in this world. Of course, there's never a you know one-to-one correlation exactly, but the person who's industrious tends to prosper more than the person who's lazy. And Christians sometimes are lazy, and that's an exhibition of foolishness. But when we're lazy, we hurt ourselves. Uh, We hurt our families. uh, We hurt our employers. So I think there are all sorts of ways in which we Christians have to acknowledge that there's much foolishness in our lives and that we actually hurt others and uh, fail to glorify God insofar as we persist in our foolishness. And as we touched on before, James 3 makes a strong distinction between an earthly demonic, he says, wisdom and a heavenly wisdom, spiritual wisdom. And he says, quoting here, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Or uh, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And that's James 3, 13 through 18 from the ESV. So, as James thinks about uh, wisdom and foolishness, at least in this context, what's the nature of the distinction? From where does it come? What kind of distinction is James making here between uh, wisdom and foolishness? Yeah, I think it's the wisdom that he's commending here, this wisdom that's from above, uh, the, the true wisdom, is a wisdom that accurately understands the right way to live that's pleasing to God and that's beneficial to other people. Whereas that foolishness, that demonic kind of wisdom, which is not really a wisdom at all, you notice his description is in terms of a self-absorption, right? It looks with others as suspicion. It looks with others as those to be triumphed over, right? Uh, There's this selfishness, this jealousy. And I think that makes so much sense in the light of what we see in Proverbs. I come back to Proverbs again. Proverbs is continually orienting us towards what? Well, towards seeking peace with others 
towards humility, the very kinds of things that this demonic wisdom seeks to overthrow. I mean, what's the opposite of humility? Well, it's this pride, this vanity. And that's exactly what James is talking about, is this demonic wisdom. The opposite of this peace-seeking is one who stirs up dissension, uh, one who's constantly living at others' throats. And that's exactly the kind of demonic thinking that James is talking about. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, we need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. When he says demonic, he's not being hyperbolic, right? He's thinking of the fall. What was it that the evil one did and what was it that he offered? Well, he came and he created the division between Adam and God. And he did so on the basis, at least in part, of selfish ambition. Listen, you don't have to obey God to enter into glory. In fact, you can be like God if only you'll obey me. And so here's my covenant. Do what I say and here's how I will reward you. And so that really is demonic. That's right. I mean, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, right? And so, if one does not fear the Lord, one's going to fear someone else. I mean, one is ultimately thinks oneself is the center of the universe. And really, that's what Satan was inviting Adam and Eve to do, is right, to make themselves gods, to make their own way and their own right and their own authority the highest that there is. That wisdom that's from above is one that's centered in God. It fears God, and therefore, it doesn't seek to elevate oneself, but to put oneself in service to God and one's neighbor. And James connects very closely this demonic wisdom, which is really lies and foolishness, to falsehood, and true wisdom, heavenly wisdom, is very closely connected to truth. So real heavenly wisdom that Christians have by virtue of God's grace and self-disclosure in Christ and in Holy Scripture really requires us to love and embrace and be committed to the truth as opposed to falsehood. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a real reason why wisdom is often put in parallel to other terms like understanding and discernment. It's not only an intellectual thing. It's very much about the heart and about living in accord with your understanding. But the one who seeks wisdom in the scripture is one who seeks to grow in understanding, who needs to know God better, who needs to understand the way this world works better, and someone who's not committed to the truth, uh, someone who's not humble enough to learn the truth and, in a sense, to bow before it, is one who's going to live out of accord with the way God made this world, and so is going to live in ways that are destructive and that promote lies. Which then gets us back to self-seeking, right? You're not really seeking to orient your life around what God has said and what really is, but you're orienting your life around what you want and how you can manipulate others or circumstances to get what you want. That's right. So, uh, we often contrast, following Scripture, wisdom and foolishness, and this episode is about the importance of wisdom. And it seems to me we can't really understand the importance of wisdom until we understand a little bit more about the antithesis of it, that is, foolishness. So, as we all know, Psalm 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What is foolishness? We've already seen some manifestations, but give us a thumbnail sketch. 
Well, in pointing to to Psalm 14.1, you have, I think, put your finger on probably the key to what is foolishness, and that is ultimately not having the fear of the Lord. And not having the fear of the Lord means that one has a distorted view of what this whole world is all about, what its purposes are the reason why we're here in this world. And it also means that one cannot be truly humble and thus truly submit oneself to God's revelation. The fool is one who is sometimes presented in Scripture as incredibly naive, right? You think of some of the descriptions in Proverbs 1 through 9 of the young man who gets seduced by the foolish woman. This is a picture of sexual temptation, right? Well, yeah, I mean, there's certainly more to it than that, of course. There is this sexual seduction is sort of the symbol of the broader seduction of foolishness. And foolishness really is presented frequently as something that's very attractive. Right. This morning I was meditating on what the Dutch Reformed used to describe as worldly amusements. I mean, it's been common in our circles now for decades to sort of make fun of the old strictures from 1928 against worldly amusements. But if you just think about gambling, you think about the government promoting the lottery, and you know you can't win if you don't play. And yet it's the essence of foolishness, since statistically, even from a purely natural point of view, the likelihood of actually winning are... Uh, astronomically against you. And even if you do win, we now have enough experience to know that the consequences frequently are very bad, right, of getting all this quote-unquote easy money all at once. And so gambling is presented to us now by our government as an attractive, sexy, exciting, thrilling thing. And so it's foolishness, but it is presented in a very seductive sort of way. Yeah, this foolish woman in Proverbs has all these reasons why the young man should give in. And so there is this element of seduction. So one way that I think we need to understand foolishness is sort of along the lines of immaturity, right? It's the young man who needs to learn wisdom because in a sense, we're all born foolish. We're not born wise. And one of our responsibilities as parents is to try to help our children learn wisdom. We need to to train them. Don't stick that fork in the outlet. Right. But what we're doing is trying to help them. And I think this is very important, right? We're not just teaching them a bunch of rules. We're trying to help them understand the broader reality of things. We don't want them just to know the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. We want them to have a fuller understanding of why adultery is evil, about why it's harmful, about why it destroys people's lives. And so, one portrait of the fool in Scripture is the immature person, especially the child, but it could be an adult who's immature, who needs to grow and to gain that maturity. And then there's also the fool who is, in a sense, mature, but mature in his evil. It's the person who knowingly rejects God, uh, refuses to submit to God, who embraces the life of adultery and of theft and of injustice that characterizes the fool as he's described so often in Scripture. Which is often presented to us in our culture, particularly since 1968, in the persona of the anti-hero, as the coolest, hippest, neatest way to live. And who wants to be the sort of upright, clean-cut guy? He's always the doofus and the nerd. But in popular media, it's the rebel, right? The bad guy, in a sense, who's presented as the hero and the guy whom we should ultimately emulate. Yeah, there's probably a sense in which that's always been the case. <laughs> we, we can, again, seeing in Proverbs that the young man is tempted to join with those who say, hey, come along with us and we're going to work mischief. I mean, there's always been that attraction 
that seduction. But you're certainly right that there are, in the last couple of generations, there has been this increased sort of portrayal of the fool as one who, in a sense, is... He's glorified. ...liberated and glorified. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So, we're sort of back to where we began. Is wisdom really important? Because we can look around and see people doing a lot of very foolish things and getting away with it, it seems. And we don't always see the circumstances. So, you know, Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Why should we ultimately number our days and get a heart of wisdom? Well, let me give a couple of responses to that. For one thing, if we look around and we see people who are fools, people do foolish things and yet they seem to prosper and to succeed in certain ways, it shouldn't surprise us biblically. I mean, despite all the things we've been talking about, despite the fact that wisdom tends to promote success and flourishing, Scripture is very clear that it doesn't always work that way, right? And I guess we would think of Ecclesiastes probably as the book in Scripture that most especially points us in that way, right? The battle's not always to the strong. The race is not always to the swift. And you have many other uh, examples in which evildoers flourish. Now, Scripture also reminds us that the prosperity of the wicked tends to be short and that we don't know how long the evildoer will prosper, but we know that even if he has to wait till the final judgment, there is going to be a reckoning for his works. Now, having said that, you ask the question, why is it really important for Christians to pursue wisdom? And I want to touch here on something that we we really haven't talked about yet, and that's the fact that Christians need to get away from the temptation to think of ethics or the moral life only in terms of rules. Right? And that in so many ways, the most important moral decisions we make every day are not those that have to do with having forgotten the right rule. Right? Most Christians don't get up in the morning and think, should I kill someone today? Right? <laughs> we, we hope not. Should I we, steal we, something we, today? We, we trust I, not, yeah. And it's not to say that Christians never do very wicked things, but it's not because they don't know the rules. But you think about what are the most consequential moral decisions that you're likely to make in a given day? Well, it might be that you know your spouse wakes up in the morning and is very disturbed about something. How do you deal with that? It might be that your teenage child has done something rebellious. Well, now, how do you respond to that? Maybe there's a conflict at work. Well, how do I deal with that? Uh, I've got an hour before I go to bed. Well, how do I spend that time? Do I play with my kids? Do I talk with my wife? Do I do some more work? Do I watch television? What I'm getting at here is, I mean, these are morally rich decisions that can have a huge effect upon how our life goes, about our relationships at home, at work, about our well-being in so many ways. And yet, there's no rule that's going to give us an, an absolute answer to these questions. Wisdom is so important because wisdom gives us that perception. It gives us that insight into the way this world is put together, right? That given what I know about this situation, given what I know about the people involved, if I say this now, it's just going to cause more trouble. Whereas if I say this, it's going to help to bring healing. And we know that our wisdom is always going to be frail, that we're, we're going to make wrong decisions. We're going to make misjudgments. And even sometimes when we do something that objectively was very wise, it's not always going to turn out the way that we would hope. And yet, God has exhorted us uh, to conduct ourselves with wisdom, and uh, we do have to trust in Him that as we pursue that course of wisdom, He will use our sanctified growth, not only to bring good in our own lives, but also to bless the other people around us. 
And wisdom is related to God's law. God's law says, love the Lord your God with all your faculties and your neighbor as yourself. So as you face these various sort of in-between circumstances for which there isn't a specific rule, you are still seeking in some way to apply, for example, the, the second table to love your neighbor. Is it gracious? Is it loving to say to your wife if she's disturbed about something in the morning, well, you know, you didn't do A, B, and C. That might not be very wise. It may be true, but it's not wise because it's not gracious and it's not really loving, even though it is, in a sense, objectively true, right? Is that kind of what you're getting at? I mean, yeah, these things aren't utterly divorced. Oh, no. Right. I would say. Sewing some things together here. Right. I mean, I would say that God's law is something objective, it's something that He reveals to us both in natural and special revelation. Wisdom is ultimately something subjective. I mean, we are the ones who exercise wisdom. So I would say that our wisdom is the proper perception of the fullness of God's law. And we have to remember that God's law is not simply 10 rules. As you say, it's much more holistic than that, right? It's love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the second table of the law is going to help us, give us some really good instruction about how we put that into practice. But it's more than just being able to memorize a handful of rules. To love our neighbor requires this fuller understanding of God's will for us in this world. Without wisdom, we're not going to be able to perceive what really brings benefit and what really brings reconciliation, uh, what really brings encouragement to other people. And if we can't do that, we're not going to be loving our neighbor. And it's true, too, that uh, wisdom ultimately is more satisfying, we trust, for the believer. Psalm 90, verse 14, so just after the verse that we quoted earlier, it says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And it goes on to sort of give some of the benefits of having a heart of wisdom. So if we do, as you were referring to earlier, and we do as James instructs in James 1, 5 through 7, if we, when we lack wisdom, If we ask God, who gives generously, as he says, to all without reproach, and it will be given him, and if we ask in faith, God does answer that prayer, and he does bless the giving of wisdom to his people. Yeah, that's right. And I think you might even think of it in terms of the image of God, right? Because as we were talking about earlier, uh, our growth in wisdom is a growing and thinking God's thoughts after him. It's not a self-created kind of knowledge. It's an understanding of God in the world that he's made. As we were made in the image of God to reflect God's glory, to live for his glory, to be his servants in this world. And insofar as we grow in wisdom, it is part of our recreation in the image of Christ. So in the sense, as we exercise wisdom, we're being who we were created to be. And as we live in ways according to what we were created to be, that will be more satisfying. Certainly foolishness, as we're also speaking about, has that temporary kind of allure and seduction. Fools think momentarily that they're more satisfied than those who abstain from foolish things. But it's only in the way of wisdom that we are conformed to the image of God in Christ. And it's only in that way that we find the true joy, the true satisfaction God calls us to have. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.